0: say 25 years ago, you would sort of jokingly say, or anecdotally say, it's like, ah, oh, you know, people are nuts, people are crazy out there, you just can't But there was really no way of knowing that. We just kind of said that. Now there is this kind of clear record of it. And... It makes me wonder if the technology has sort of pushed people in this direction and, it's, you know, it's actually there's a causal relationship between it or if it is just a reflection of that reality, if this has always been the case.
1: Welcome back to another episode of Airplane Mode. I'm your host, Clay Skipper. This week's guest is Chuck Klosterman. If you thought his name was pronounced Chuck Klosterman, so did I, but it turns out that is the incorrect pronunciation, which he very kindly points out to me at the top of the episode. Chuck is a writer and an author, a cultural critic. I'm sure you have come across one or many of his pieces over the past couple decades. He's written for a number of publications, including a place called GQ. He has written a number of books, the most popular of which was probably his 2003 book, Sex, Drugs, and Cocoa Puss, which was just full of whip-smart essays about pop culture. He also has a new book out, he just released a collection of stories. It's called Raised in Captivity. And across all these publications and all these books, Chuck has proven himself to be not only deeply funny, but deeply thoughtful about so many different things. Also, because he's done so much criticism, I wanted to ask him how that has affected his ability, having just released a new book, to take the criticism. He had some interesting and perhaps counterintuitive thoughts about that. He says you should read the comments, um, which I will let him unpack why he says that, because he gets into it on the and says a lot of interesting things about that also I wanted to ask him how he consumes media these days not just where he gets his information but how he stays informed without sort of going nuts and also how he in the day and age of takes and think pieces is able to still you know create space to form his own opinion about these things I hope you guys enjoy this conversation with Chuck Klosterman
0: Chuck Klosterman, welcome to Airplane Mode. Hey, you might. my name is pronounced Klosterman, though. Oh, that is important. <laughs> I wouldn't tell you if it wasn't a podcast. If you've ever called me that in person, I would have never, ever interrupted you. But for podcasts and radio, I, I feel like I should always tell people that. No, I appreciate it. Does that okay. happen a lot? Constantly. It looks like Klosterman. There's no logical reason you'd think it's Klosterman. Uh, there's, no umla- <laughs> I mean, there's no umlauts over it. I kind of wish in some ways that I had just went with Klosterman early in my career, but my dad was always like, don't do that. Your name is Klosterman. So now he's wow. dead, but I still do it. Okay. okay. <laughs> I love that.
1: All right. I'm glad you corrected me. So Chuck Klosterman, welcome to airplane mode. We are here talking about your new book raised in captivity, fictional nonfiction. What, why did you choose to go with fictional nonfiction?
0: Well, you know, that's actually kind of an inside joke to myself. <laughs> Cause when you think about fictional nonfiction, what is that? Well, fiction. What if it was non-fictional fiction? That would also be fiction. Like, it's. it was basically a way to avoid just putting stories at the bottom of the book. I now realize it's almost consciously confusing to people, but oh well, what can you do? How would you articulate the thread that sort of they all hang on, or that holds them together? If there is a larger meaning to the whole anthology, which I guess one hopes that like a reader will get, it is interpretive and kind of on the consumer. A lot of these things have similar themes. A lot of the stories have similar themes. Very often it is old oh, people underreacting to insane situations or overreacting to common situations. There's a lot about the dissidence between hard reality and constructed reality. I mean, I could kind of give a real pedantic explanation of this. But, you know, my goal when I'm writing them is that the stories are interesting and entertaining and clear. Those are the only three things I really care about. If the story is pleasant for the person to consume, makes them think about anything in their life or outside of it, and is clear enough that the text is very straightforward and any complexity comes from their perception of the subtext, the story is successful. I read somewhere that, that these began as
1: years of thoughts and made-up conversations saved on your phone? Is that true? That's true.
0: That's absolutely true. For about five years, I would do that. Anytime I would have like a weird idea or some kind of weird piece of conversation, I would just write it into the Notes app of my iPhone. And then I had hundreds and hundreds of these. And then at one point, I decided I'm going to turn these into stories. And my initial conception was that was going to write 100 stories that were exactly 1,000 words long. That was the initial plan. And I started doing that and started trying it. But then, I mean, for a variety of reasons, I realized that was idiotic. And then the stories ended up just becoming the size they were supposed to be. Basically, I would write a story a week for 50 weeks, came up with about 50 stories, and then published 34. So, came out on the
1: 16th. Yeah. How much of the noise do you hear about its sort of reception? The thing I guess the thing I'm getting at ultimately is, as someone who has done criticism before, written plenty of criticism in your life, are you good at taking criticism, or hearing criticism of your own book?
0: Well, okay. When you ask that question, when you, when someone has said, "Are you good at taking criticism?" What does it mean to be good at it? It basically means like you don't care, right? That's what everyone hopes to attain. That at some point that they be have their work viewed by other people, and it doesn't matter at all. Um, or I
1: push back a little bit there, not to interrupt, but just to say that not necessarily that you don't care, but that you can care and maybe still evaluate the feedback objectively and integrate the parts that is actually constructive feedback.
0: Well, I would disagree. I would say the best situation would be not to care at all. The book is done. <laughs> okay. I mean, okay. what, what yeah. good would it do for me to integrate criticisms of this work? The book exists, you know, well, for the next um, book, maybe. I don't know. How is that? You can't you can't <laughs> look at someone's reception to one book and be like, okay, now I'm really gonna uh, you know build this into my consciousness for the next one. I mean that <laughs> I, that would be very detrimental. I mean the thing is, it is impossible not to be somewhat affected by the way your work is received because you know if you're a writer or a musician or a filmmaker or a visual artist, whatever the case may be, you know, stand up comedian, there is an aspect of this that demands some understanding that this is a received thing as much as an intended thing. Like, in other words, I have an intention for what the book should be, but the received message matters just as much, okay? And I can't control the way something is received So it doesn't really benefit me at all to consider that. However, Mm. of course, I'm curious about it. You know, I mean, there are people in the publicity industry who will actually say like, you know, all publicity is good publicity. I don't really believe that. But from a commercial standpoint, it probably is true. Because if you get like a really, really good review in the New York Times book review, it will, you know, help your sales for two weeks or three weeks. If you get a really, really, really negative one, It'll help your sales for one week. A couple of things that are interesting. First is the idea of
1: what you intend the message to be is different from the way it's received. Because you have a story in the book, Blizzard of Summer, that is in some ways about that very process, right? In in terms of you have this band that puts out a a hit song. What's the song called? Blizzard of Summer. It's Blizzard of Summer. It's the name of the story. And it becomes sort of co-opted by
0: racists. Yes, the idea of a song that has no racial meaning whatsoever—it is actually uh, a like a power pop song about a relationship that, for whatever, for reasons unknown to anyone involved, becomes extremely beloved by racists, and then they have to sort of think about, well, what does this mean, you know, and how do we how do we sort of reconcile what everyone, you know, our meaning of the song, what most people think of it, and then what a fringe member of society thinks of it. I mean, one of the basis for it was many years ago, Ozzy Osbourne released a song called Suicide Solution and some teenagers you know, killed themselves after he- listening to that song. That was the last thing they listened to before they committed suicide. Now, that song is about Bon Scott of ACDC drinking himself to death. So hmm. Ozzy's reaction was, well, it's not my fault if people misinterpret this song. You know, it's like, I, if they take it so seriously that they would kill themselves over it, I expect they would take it seriously enough to, you know, read the lyrics or find out what the song is about, which, of course, is a very good argument although the song is called Suicide Solution. So it is confusing, you know? Does it matter if your intended message is X if even a sliver of people think the message is Z? And the reaction that accompanies interpretation Z has more impact than every other normal interpretation. Mm -hmm, You know, mm -hmm. I mean, like Charles Manson's perception of helter skelter was more significant than the 10 million people who just thought oh this is a kind of a heavier beatles song you know that's like that's what most people <laughs> yeah. thought you know yeah, uh, yeah, they, yeah they didn't think it was about a race war only one guy did but everything about culture changed because of that misinterpretation so mm. are the beatles responsible or are they you know would only a fool blame them I mean, that's what kind of the story is about like what
1: is your sort of filter for hearing criticism about your own book I mean, how, will you
0: read reviews? Will people send you reviews? Like, how does that? How does that process even work for you? Well, your publicist sends you all the good reviews, right? Like, you, <laughs> like if you get a good review, they send it to you. Okay. But, what do they do with the bad reviews? Not send them. They don't send them. But of course, if you're somebody who works in the media, you will recognize that they must exist, right? Yes. Like, okay, thus far in this book, we're talking on like on a Monday, okay? So, so far, this has probably been the best reviewed book I've ever had, okay? It's like hmm. a, there, there was one negative review, every other one has been positive. But the New York hmm. Times review has not come out yet, okay? I expect that will probably be negative, just judged on past history. But here's the deal. If I don't get an email from my publicist, I will know that it must have run. So then the question (laughs) becomes like, do I just pretend it doesn't exist? I mean, it's not going to change if I know about it. That's sort of always my take on this. It's like, you know, people always say, don't read the comments. You know, never read the comments. I was like, well, it's not like they disappear if I don't see them. I mean, I'll read the comments. It's like, you know, you just, that's going to be there regardless, right? So Uh why should I be the one person who doesn't know what the comments are? The other advice I always give to people like about Twitter and stuff like that, like, you know, the reaction many writers or, you know, People just media people, anybody just sort of kind of that mid-level range of notoriety where you're not famous, but some people know who you are. They are like, well, don't even look at the people who are at you or don't, you know, yeah. just ignore, block them immediately. That's actually not the best move. Because if okay. you do that, if you just block them immediately or just ignore them, it's almost as though you are saying, well, you know, there's a whole bunch of opinions and I'm just going to try to avoid the ones that I don't see having a benefit. If you get like a really weird tweet from someone, like especially a real ag- aggressive tweet from somebody that just doesn't know you and it's like, it's real odd, go in and check their timeline. It will make you feel better every time. <laughs> really? I mean, I'm not, not most of the time. Every time, because those things never happen in a total vacuum. There is nobody who has a real sort of cogent, interesting, funny Twitter timeline. And then every once a year, like six months or whatever, that they write something crazy at a total stranger. I mean, it raises a real kind of complicated question to me, which I think about a lot, which, you know, say 25 years ago, you would sort of jokingly say or anecdotally say, it's like, ah, you know, people are nuts. People are crazy out there. You just can't Mm -hmm. be. But there was really no way of knowing that. We just kind of said that, you know, Mm -hmm. and it was, you know, (laughs) now there is this kind of clear record of it. And... (laughs) It makes me wonder if the technology has sort of pushed people in this direction. And it's, you know, it's actually, there's a causal relationship between it or if it is just a reflection of that reality, if this has always been the case. And instead of people just having these interior thoughts, they now have an exterior way to express it. Wow. When Facebook was new and Twitter was new, even when like Friendster was new, like, you know, Mm -hmm. and you might not even remember that. That was like 2004 or whatever. There was sort of this belief that like, well, you know, there's, there's the person in real life and then there's the person's constructed persona on social media. But more and more, I am starting to wonder if that is actually reversed and if someone's relationship sometimes to their constructed social media personality actually is who they are and all huh. the times you see them in life that's when they're editing their behavior and that they have sort of been socialized to realize that there's a certain things you have to say and behave and you just can't say crazy things to people you don't know and that you shouldn't be performative about your rage and your emotion and all that stuff. And then this situation now Actually allows them to be their organic self The person they want to be And that's that's a, that's an interesting thing Because, you know, I, I, I guess I don't want to believe that But I see more and more evidence that makes me think that
1: Huh, how true is that? for you though. Like what's your relation to your social media identity?
0: Well, I mean, I use social media basically to promote my books and my events. That's about it. I mean, I'm in a little different situation because I mean, I feel to a degree that social media is specifically geared toward people who don't have another venue or option to express their opinions in public in the public sphere. Like, you know, it's a little weird to me like somebody will will link to like a youtube clip or a joke someone made or a story and they will write like i feel seen (laughs) it's, it's a real odd thing to me because what the person is basically saying is this thing that's happening in the culture makes me feel as like you'll you can understand me through this thing and i want you to understand me like i don't feel unseen right like if anything i have been overseen (laughs) <laughs> I, I, yeah, I have yeah. been I, I've, I've written 11 books I've worked in the media for 25 years I go on all these fucking podcasts I don't feel in <laughs> any way That my voice is not being heard So as a uh-huh. consequence I look at Twitter And it's like not something I just think that well I don't really see the benefit of it And I do see a detriment to it There are so many people who my feelings about them Have changed because of their Online persona you know So I was like mm-hmm. well I don't want that I don't want to have that experience Of course, I wonder, what if instead of Twitter emerging when I was, whatever I was, 37 or whatever, 36, Yeah, what if I had been 19? I fear I would have been obsessed with it. I fear I would have done it all day long. Every relationship I would have had would have been pushed through this filter. So I try to have some Uh empathy for that, too.
1: So just to your earlier point, though, the the idea you're talking about is that the thought experiment you're running through is are people becoming more performative in real life and actually being less performative and more themselves on social media.
0: Yes, although in real life, there's not a real uh, value seen in being performative. Okay, It's like we use the, what was the common like uh, comparison people would first use about social media. They would say like, oh, it's like the town square or it's like a cocktail party where the whole world is united. But if you think about it, if you went to a cocktail party and somebody was standing on a table just spewing out ideas about politics as people walked by, they'd be like, <laughs> get that dude out of the party, right? Or if, I, or if you walked down yeah. to the town square and there was someone just constantly yelling at strangers about things that they kind of you know that would be a bad party a bad town square culture tells us not to be performative in that way but at the same time if you're really editing yourself and acting unnaturally that's a kind of performance it just goes unnoticed
1: does this at all tie into a phrase you said earlier that i jotted down i wanted to follow up on was you used the phrase hard reality versus constructed reality.
0: Sure. I mean, a little bit. The history of humankind, though, is a move away from hard reality. I mean, in a sense, when I talk about constructed reality, I mean anything that we construct that sort of then becomes sort of the normal way of living, in a sense, moving from living outside into a cave, into a house. Mm-hmm. That's a kind mm-hmm. of constructed reality because we don't look at a house as something like you know, it would probably be good, but no one's going to do this. We're like, every time they come home, be like, I can't believe I have a house. It's like walls. <laughs> it's like, it's like we just, that's just normative, you know? Yes. So yeah. everything, you know, whether... It be, you know, everything that happened in the Industrial Revolution. All of these things were moving people away sort of from the hard reality of life that exists no matter what. You know, if you drop a person into the desert, there is a hard reality if they have nothing else to work with. And we sort of live now in a constructed, mediated reality. But starting really with... I mean, I guess you could say with the gramophone or whatever, but then accelerating with television and then tripling acceleration with the internet, most of our reality is now constructed. And most of our understanding of how the world is, is through this sort of false filter, which is there all the time. Like, you know, and we wouldn't necessarily want it removed. I mean, you know, Hmm. I've talked about this in past books, you know, I think one of the most underrated things about the experience of being alive is like, so for however long you consider humans to have existed, you know, I mean, some people would say 25,000 years. Somebody would say, you know, some people would say 250,000 years. Whatever you pick is the beginning of like when like the hominid is like a person. Okay. Uh Well, for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, if you saw something, it meant it was in front of you. If you saw a tiger, that meant you were looking... A tiger a, a, And uh-huh. everything about your biological makeup Told you, you know, get away from it Or, or <laughs> tiger, attack it yeah. or whatever Okay. Yeah. Well then, once we start with the idea of film You know, with the great train robbery I don't know, it's like 1908 or something From that point forward, it's becoming more and more common For us to see things that aren't there all the time But just think of biologically how crazy that is That aren't, enti- you know, pretty much from The creatures that crawled out of the water you know, millions of years ago, up until 1890 or so, there was no chance that you were going to see something that wasn't there. And now we've just instantly accepted that dissonance. But have we biologically been able to process that? I often wonder if part of the reason people feel so alienated by this technology they love, you know, their phone or whatever. People will lose their goddamn mind if they can't find their phone on the same way. Okay, And yet if somebody said, do you love your phone? Does it make you happy? Almost everybody would say, I don't know. No, actually. You know, when Twitter went down a couple of weeks ago, many people then later tweeted, I was kind of hoping maybe it would never come back or whatever. (laughs) Like they are using the medium to say, I hope that, you know, now why is that? Maybe is there something in us that's telling us this is weird that we're now in this life where most of what we experience is a fabrication, but it's so ingrained with us that we can't get our mind to see sort of the collision of hard and false Mm -hmm. reality i don't know
1: i've talked to a number of people about how it does seem like so many people hate twitter and yet cannot live without it someone once said there's like a real business opportunity there because no one has hated the thing they felt like they need the most which is twitter right
0: well sure it's like you know it's i There was some talk of that about television, you know, I mean, there was a a long period, particularly in the seventies and early eighties, where there was this idea that the people who disliked television the most were the people who watched it the most and that it was sort of changing the way people viewed reality and all that. And, you know, time has proven that that's probably true. You know, hmm. the things about technology is the criticisms of it in a specific sense are almost always wrong, but in an abstract sense are almost always correct. I mean, when people talk about, say, the influence. MTV had in the 1980s. They were wrong about many things, but the big thing was always that this is going to shorten people's attention span because Mm. instead of watching a half-hour show, they're now watching a three-minute show and that the kids who watch videos all day long are going to start seeing these videos as autonomous things and it's going to be impossible for them to watch something that's lengthy and complicated and eventually it's going to make it very difficult for them to read anything that requires, you know, 40 minutes of, of uninterrupted thought. It's pretty hard to argue that that hasn't happened. I
1: want to start wrapping up because I don't want to take up too much of your time. But one thing I do want to dive into before you go is I'm very curious to get to understand your sort of media consumption. I mean, we talked about it a little bit with the criticism in terms of, you know, your publisher sends you reviews. But just on a more general basis, like in the day and age of Twitter and hot takes and whatnot, like what do you read and how do you read To be informed or stay up on things without, like, being overwhelmed or angered or completely losing your mind. I'm curious what, just on a basic level, how you consume media and the news and whatnot.
0: Well, you know, I read the Washington Post and I read the New York Times. I look at ESPN and I look at social media. And, Hmm. you know, what's weird is that the idea of keeping up on stuff, that's actually much easier than it used to be because now things come to me. And it's not just like the biggest ideas. It's kind of everything. It's like I... Uh, it is very easy to have a sense of what the discourse is because there are people now pushing it at you where there was a time when... If you really wanted to know sort of about fringe popular culture, for example, like you had to dig for it, you know? Now it's not like that. Now there's somebody out there who sees themselves as almost like their own kind of self-published newspaper, and the topic they cover is fringe popular culture, and they're Mm going to push these things out. So I in no way feel like I'm missing anything. How do you sort through that noise, though, I guess is more my question, because there's so much of it.
1: Do, Do you just stick with those websites or, you know?
0: Well, the thing about the social media stuff is it'll lead you to the other thing. Like, for example, I will admit I don't subscribe to GQ anymore. I did for many years. I don't. What the sub- fuck, Chuck? Why not? I don't because I don't subscribe to any magazines. Right? <laughs> okay. Okay. But there is a zero percent chance that I am going to miss the best stories in GQ. There's no way it'll happen. Mm there's zero chance there's no way that if something is that is good or controversial or so bad that people want to talk about it or involve (laughs) somebody who's so famous like there's no way I'm not going to hear about it there's just no chance there's like I will hear about it even if I make a conscious decision not to there are celebrities who I have no interest in whatsoever and I know quite a bit about them just because I have been informed of these things for this secondary reason, which is not the main reason would be my interest. I can't think of many situations in the last five years where I have gone to a bar with people and somebody was talking about something and I was like, I have no idea what you're talking about unless Mm -hmm. the thing is so goddamn stupid (laughs) that even the people talking about it are like, well, I'm embarrassed to admit this. But like many people are upset that Chris Pratt wore a T-shirt that had a snake on it that has some relationship to the alt-right movement. Stuff like that will come up, but like I could have missed that, right? Like so often now, particularly with controversial stories, we act as though the controversial story is getting all the attention, but actually it's the reaction to it that's getting far more traction. Somebody will say something in an interview and it will be a controversial thing that they said and uh, thousands and thousands and thousands of people will react to it. And make that a news story then. And then we act as though the story is what the person said. But the real story is that a lot of people were upset by it.
1: So did you catch wind at all? And maybe this was a specific New York media thing. But your unbelievable answer to the literary dinner party question in the by the book interview you just did with the New York Times. Did you catch wind of that sort of having a moment on Twitter? (laughs) Of course I did.
0: I mean, it's like (laughs) I have it too. And it's just just a weird thing. I mean, like they're well, react- a great answer. <laughs> well, but people ha- want to use it for whatever reason they want to use it for. Some yeah, people yeah, yeah. have been like, uh, they see it having some kind of gendered meaning. That somehow, like, oh, this is a guy who's trying... This is proof that, like, a man is trying to kind of push his... I-, I-, I answered the question. The weirdest reaction, though, is the many people who seem to be like, oh, just answer the question. Just give the three names. <laughs> like, they would prefer... I give a boring answer? I don't know why anybody would think that. Why would anybody think that it's better somehow to give a dull answer? And and then the third thing is that the other... You know, after a while, after it happens for a few days, there are some people who sort of act as though it's like, I pitched this to the New York Times book review. <laughs> it's like I answered the question. They gave me a whole list of them. I had to do it. Then there's some people who like it, who think it's really great or whatever. And I guess I'm happy that that happened. I, you know, I it is one of these things where it's like you can't think too much about it. Because if I yeah. actually start trying to think about why it happened, I don't know, like there'll be no (laughs) conclusion because it's just, it just happened. I thought it was an okay answer. I certainly wouldn't say to myself, it's like, well, if people remember one thing about me, it's my answer. (laughs) I would never have thought that. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I feel like a lot of your work in the past has been about, you know, cultural, pop culture criticism, but also sort of digesting pop culture and unpacking what it means in some way and I'm curious like in a day and age again going back to sort of media consumption when there are so many opinions and hot takes out there like one thing I find is that it's very difficult to go into a movie or an album these days without having some sort of preconceived notion of what it might be because you just hear so much about it ahead of experiencing it and I'm I'm curious how you inoculate yourself from that or maybe you don't inoculate yourself but how that sort of works and
0: how you sort of give yourself the space to form your own opinion it's hard kind of not to know about these things there's i mean okay i'm really excited about this quentin tarantino movie right i think it looks to me like i mean who knows i haven't seen it yet seems like it could potentially be his best film so i'm just not reading anything about it and it's not that hard To do, like, it's just, you know, what's hard is people who are, who have read about it, and then they give their own little take on what they read, so then Mm -hmm. you gotta triangulate a meaning from Mm -hmm. it, you know? But I, I I don't know, it's like how, I suppose there is some argument that would say... That if learning anything about the thing ruins your experience, maybe the thing wasn't that good. But I mean, how do you avoid the noise of it? I just, I think you just sort of grow a little bit immune to it. It's like living next yeah, to an yeah. airport, you know?
1: <laughs> I like that. The last question we always ask in this podcast is for a favorite fuck up.
0: Well, uh, I mean, there are so many in, in my life. I just, here's one right away I could think of, okay? So, uh, one time I was writing about the Olympics, okay, and how I'm not really a huge fan of the Olympics, I just don't like the idea of patriotism, I just think it's a negative thing, and I don't like the way they're sort of framed and pitched to us or whatever. We're going to the Olympics, and I'm sort of just sort of kind of giving these kind of like wide-angle complaints about them, but I'm also like picking up some just kind of random Olympians and saying like, you know, we're all gonna focus on these people for two weeks, and then like no one's ever going to care again. They're going to be totally lost to history, and they're going to be confusing if their name ever comes up. One of the people I'm talking about was Michael Phelps, but which is even... the even bigger mistake is that, like, I spelled his name wrong. I called him, like, Tommy Phelps or something. So, like, I got his name wrong, and I was totally wrong about the degree people would remember him, you know? I mean, you can go back to, like, Sex, Drugs, and Cocoa Puffs, though, man. That book is still popular. It is riddled with things that, in retrospect... Uh, you know, I uh, ended up not being very accurate. Uh, mm. that's part of doing this. I mean, like you know yeah. if you're if you're trying to write about things in a real contemporary way, you're occasionally gonna gonna miss bad. you know, I when I worked at the Akron Beacon Journal, I interviewed Donald Fagan of Steely Dan, and I was so you know, I love Steely Dan so much, and I w- thought I did a really good interview with him. And uh, I spelled Fagan wrong every time in the mm. entire story. And no one noticed. Huh. no one noticed went through the copy desk got <laughs> one letter from one person who noticed it but will also said like great article you know but that's like the the oh i, I i'll that's all i can remember is that wow. mistake. oh in fargo rock city there's a part in that book where i suggest that ozzy osborne wrote most of the lyrics to black sabbath material it, of course was written by geezer butler that mistake huh. bothers me so much there's so many other things in that book that like if people went through it they might have like real issues with it but like That's the thing that drives me crazy, that mistake. I just, I'll remember these my whole life, you know?
1: Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, everyone we ask this question to says at the beginning goes, there's so many of them. It seems like in some ways the fuck-ups are the things we remember. Well, yeah, and that's like, that's... Far more memorable.
0: That's an important thing in a way yeah a person who can't remember their mistakes is probably still making them constantly i mean that you know it's it's the maybe one of the strangest things about writing in general is that you have to have this high level of cognitive dissonance because you need to have two thoughts in your head at all times one thought is that this thing i'm working on is the most important thing in the world and if i make a mistake there's (laughs) going to be real consequences and the other thing you have to realize is that none of this matters at all and it wouldn't matter at all if i wrote this or not and that the part of the reason i can do it freely is because nothing is at stake and you have to think of both of those things at the same time and it's real complicated
1: yeah wow i think that ends us on a very nice note so thank you very much for uh taking the time to join us in airplane mode
0: oh hey well thanks for talking to me man
1: That is it for this episode of Airplane Mode. Thank you to Chuck for coming on. His book Raising Captivity is out now. That is also it sadly for this season of Airplane Mode. Maybe you didn't know that podcasts have seasons. I didn't know that either, but apparently, Sometimes they do, or at least this one does. So we're going to go on what I hope is a brief hiatus, and then we will be back, but have so appreciated you guys for tuning in and listening to these episodes. Very grateful for Jessamyn Molly, our producer. If you guys have any feedback on the first season that would be great to know about, please, you can reach me at clay underscore skipper at GQ.com. I'm on Twitter at Skipper Clay. Tweet if you want to tell me about guests you'd love to hear on, ideas you'd love us to explore things you'd like to see done differently. If you hate me, you can write about that too. And if you haven't, please subscribe, please review. You can write nice things. You can write mean things. Hopefully we'll be back before too long, regardless of what things you write. So that's it. That is a wrap for now and uh, hope to see you guys or speak to you guys again soon.